And thanks to Cry Malt, supplying premium malt for 25 years, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Good to be back. We should um, catch up with David. I've just realised David Cryer has been a very long time, our longest long time supporter, and um, we've never actually chatted to him. Well, funny you should mention that, Pete. <laughs> you know, I, 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 what's I, that? Sorry, I didn't get the show notes. So, um, who is our guest today, Matt? David Cryer from Cryer Malt. Well, there you go. So, and hopefully, uh, I mean, look, it, it's one, it's one of those things that you know, David is a big figure in the industry, and I don't just mean that in a physical sense, um, but he is a big presence in the industry and he's a huge supporter of not only our show, but the industry. So, it, But it's also very hard to get your number one sponsor on the podcast without sounding like it's a shocking, uh, you know, cash like shilling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but I, I think he's been around for 25 years. That's as good a reason as any. But before we get to that, Prof, uh, what have you been up to over the last week? Uh, we just had, um, well, you, I believe we're up at the High Country Festival, which I was hoping to go to, but uh, I was otherwise engaged uh, at the Bendigo Beer Festival, which was bigger and better than ever. Um, ah. A lovely event. And again, I don't know what it is about beer festivals in this country, but perfect weather yet again. Well, uh, maybe... God, uh, God drinks beer. What can I say? Uh, yeah, well, well, we had a little bit of rain uh, in Beechworth. Uh, I, I was down uh, with James Atkinson and uh, Luke from Ale of a Time and Crafty Pine. You, you, you're the only cool kid that wasn't there, I think, Prof. Um, so I, I'm glad that you did get an invite uh, and you had something better to go to rather than you, you were overlooked um, because it sounded like just about everyone was there. But there was a bit of rain on Saturday morning, but that cleared and it was beautiful. And uh, look, at, I, the, the, the event was pretty small. Um, it was the high country brewers and uh, you know a, a good crowd, particularly once the weather cleared. But you know, it, it's just such a beautiful part of the world. I I, I wish I could have spent more time uh, in Beechworth and uh, particularly the surrounding brewery uh, precinct because there is you know within half an hour drive of Beechworth, there is a, a vast array of uh, breweries. I think there's about nine or ten with more opening, and it's such a yeah. beautiful place to visit, both for the beer and just for the scenery. Yeah, and look, he'd never take credit for it, but um, Ben Krause has, has got a lot to do with the uh, uh, the emergence of and the growth of um, the, the craft beer scene up there. He sort of not only uh, laid a lot of the groundwork, but is also very supportive um, of both the um, primary producers, you know, the raw material producers in the in the region, and the King Valley is a, a great spot for um, for lots of um, you know um, particular produce. Um, but yeah, he he wouldn't blow his own trumpet, so we will. Yeah, and, and I mean Ben's one of those guys. I mean we, we've had him on the show a couple of times because he's he's always a good interview because he tells you what he thinks. But at the same time. Uh, you know, he is, he is very balanced and fair. You know, he sort of says, this is the way that we do it. Other people have different models. Um, but if you're looking for craft brewery, a definition of craft brewery in the dictionary, there would probably be a photo of uh, Beechworth. You know, it's not a brewery concern that, you know, got 25, 30 investors in and started up a, uh, a business. It was literally him and his dad's shed. Um, started brewing, moved into a bigger shed in, in, in the main street, he and Maria are still the the day to day face of the brewery. They're you know constantly involved. I, I understand that they own still own the business fully, um, but they've got a you know, a big local uh, in you know, 
uh, employee base, um, both at the kitchen and, and the brew house, and also reps around the country. And uh, they, you know, they, they really do epitomise when people think of craft beer, um, what craft beer is. So it was cool to get down there. Um, very exciting. Yeah. Um, Prof, any news uh, that you wanted to raise this week? Did you see anything grabbing your attention? Uh, no, there's a little bit around. Anything? Uh, nothing. No, nothing really particular, I don't think. Well, Plus, my um, computer screen's just gone down, so uh, oh, you, you, what I did have up in front of me, I, I don't have anymore. That's okay. Uh, well, look, the, I, I don't know whether it's the biggest news, but the Beer Association in the US uh, released the craft beer stats this week um, for 2016, and in 2016, there were 5,301 breweries, up 17%. Um, interestingly, craft beer had a 12.3% volume share of the American beer market, um, up from 12.2%, so it's slightly plateauing. But whilst they've got a 12.3% volume share, they've got a 21.9% value share. So they saw 10% growth in dollar value uh, to $23.5 billion. But you know, almost double value uh, what their volume is. Um, and, and, and I thought that was a really interesting statistic. Uh, I'm not an economist, but to me that means that, you know, the commodity end of the market, you know, the, the, the mainstream beer is on a very, very low margin, very, very low value, but craft brewers are able to command a higher value um, for their product. Um, yeah, and I think a lot more punters are just, you know, inverted commas, getting it now. Um, I think there's a there's a better appreciation of um, what it is, how it's made, and therefore why it costs a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, I also do wonder whether when people see those figures, when you've got a very profitable or potentially very profitable in some areas segment of a market that draws even more participants in um, and you do start to find that equilibrium take place where competition drives prices down and you, you see that brewers can continue to keep that high price. I don't know. Um, we'll see. It may even be worthwhile. The Brewers Association has an economist on staff who releases these figures. And we may even look at getting Freya to see if she can tee up an interview uh, with him. It might be interesting to talk about some yeah. of the economics behind craft beer um, with the horse rather than uh, putting words in the horse's mouth. Um, one thing that did come out of that was there were 97 craft breweries shut down last year, up from 78 in 2015 um, and 75 the year before. So whilst we are seeing a lot of Indeed. new entrants, uh, the market is starting to see... Um, uh, you know, players exit for a variety of reasons. A couple of weeks ago, I sent, I shared a an article on Facebook that I might even dig out um, for the show notes, talking about um, one or a couple of breweries that went broke and oh sorry they they, they didn't go broke they closed um, and some of the competitive pressures that were on them that I thought was really really instructive as we see more and more breweries opening in Australia. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, Prof, and say, and they say, oh, look, I want to open a brewery. We're nowhere near saturated. You know, there's only 400 breweries. And, you know, as I point out to them, you know, sure, there's only 400 breweries now, or only, there, there are 400 breweries now. You're the 401st, um, but there are also 80 to 90 to 100 that are in planning. So, you know, whilst you to say, well, the market can sustain 401, when you're 401 of 550, that's where you makes it, yeah. So yeah, a bit trickier, and 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 where number of breweries are growing at a greater rate, I think, than our um, bringing new drinkers to the fold, and I think that's I think our market needs to grow, um, perhaps before our um, our industry uh, can can sustainably grow. Exactly. 
and, and in discussions over the last couple of months with um, lots of different um, varied and different people in both retail as well as the the brewing and, and sales side of things is that you know the, the consensus is that, that this year we will see a bit of um, a bit of shrinkage a little bit of natural attrition um, a little bit of um, what's you know rationalization and uh, we posted a story, like uh, James and I both posted articles this week on the fact that uh, Little Brewing has finally confirmed their sale. Um, now, that's been floating around for a while. They went into uh, liquidation or they, they went into voluntary administration about six months ago. And uh, that was a story that we were watching. And it, it's, it's always hard when you sort of, uh, uh, we take a journalistic approach to our stories, Prof, but we're also, we don't try and be today, tonight or a current affair and you know, be the first with the story. Um, and so we've known about the Little Brewery liquidation for a while, but it held off reporting about it because they were trying to sell and also their biggest um, markets were the, 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 the big liquor chains and, you know, it would have completely killed their business if, you know, there, there was much... Um, frighten the horses, yeah. Frighten horses and obviously you want the best outcome for, for the brewery and you can scare off potential investors. But, you know, so I, I, having held off the, the story for, for six months, um, we were able to report this week that it was bought. Um, do you know Port Macquarie very well at all, Prof? No. I um, do know that they uh, the local team is, uh, is the storm, so... OK. Port Macquarie? Yeah, I've got a... Isn't that Newcastle? Oh, no, no, that's Melbourne Storm. No, OK, North. OK. Well, there yeah, you go. Melbourne okay. Storm. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, you're throwing sport, sporting references completely Sorry about that. throws me. <laughs> that, that's okay. Um, but Port Macquarie, uh, yeah, so um, there's a, a restaurant up there called the Stun Mullet, which is a hatted restaurant under the Fairfax uh, Food Awards. Um, Lou Perry is one of the owners, and uh, the, the other um, owner has a, has a winery and uh, art gallery. So they've got a hospitality background, and hopefully... You know, there's never been any question about Little uh, Brewing's um, beer. I, I rate it as some of the best beer in the country, I have to say. Um, but their business, uh, yeah, the, 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 that's yeah, not, not enough. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale. You, exactly. You, it's not necessarily going to be... We, we assume that, OK, let's, let's say, pluck a number, let's say 15 breweries by the end of this year uh, are no longer in business. But it's OK, because it'll be the ones who, uh, you know, don't have the proper distribution, don't have the best quality beer or, or the, you know, the um, best value... Um, or you know the, the beer quality is just just uh, you know not up to it. Uh, not necessarily. You can have really good beer, um, but but just the business model can't quite keep up with um, the growing market or the you know, demands of the of the business. Well, and, and and having seen some of the background to it, it it, it, it sounds like as good a brewers as they were, um, business wasn't their forte. And you know when, when they, they've got over half a million dollars in unpaid ex, uh, excise, you sort of think, well, you know, some, something's up here. Um, but yeah. anyway, so but, um, great that we'll still continue to see the little uh, brewing beers, uh, the Wicked Elf beers, and hopefully uh, we'll see them even more. So a uh, couple of links to, to those articles there. Um, another interesting story this week is the uh, Austrade sponsored a... Um, a brewing ex exhibition or brewing industry development uh, forum in China um, and some familiar faces. We had uh, Nick Pang and Glenn Harrison from Temple and also Josh from Moondog, amongst others, uh, over hawking their beers in China. Um, and uh, interesting to see the, 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 the great... And we're not talking about brew here, which uh, has... Uh, what may be pipe dreams for China. You know, these, these guys are out there, you know, sending containers at a time and apparently finding a market for it. So 
Um, what, what are your thoughts, Prof? Yeah, quite a few Australian breweries that have, um, for the last 18 months or two years or so, have been selling into China and obviously plenty of others uh, are looking to get into it. It's They certainly seem to embrace capitalism um, with, with a fervour. Um, and given that there are billions and billions of them, you don't have to sell a lot of beer. Um, or sorry, you don't have to, you know, get too many drinkers before you're selling a lot of beer. Mm. But uh, actually, James uh, Atkinson, our editor, has posted a couple of interesting articles about selling beer in China as well and uh, the, the, the the prospects for that. But uh, no, I thought it was quite interesting to see some of the small guys. Um, I was actually very interested to see in the Financial Review article, again, link in our show, show notes, that Moondog are producing over a million litres a year. I mean, they were, you know, just a couple of years ago, very, very scrappy young players, um, you know, I, I think they were had set up using old milking equipment. Prof, is that? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of dairy equipment in the uh, in the early days, and we we're also talking about you know lovely guys as they are, but I mean they've mm. got a couple of fermenters that are sitting out in the car park because they kind of mismeasured um, once they put the thing on the oh yeah no worries that'll fit in there but not with the stand on it so okay well let's just leave them outside so <laughs> nice boys not too bright but they're brilliant like great brewers and and look between the three key guys you've got a lot of the the sort of logistics the the creativity the legal side the accounting side all all kind of covered um, and look and, and they know how to market and it's interesting the, the biggest shift that that um, I think um, belongs to them is that rather than the, the really odd beers with the really odd names and the funky artwork, they're now making the, you know, the line and length um, session sort of beers, which, I, you know, um, you've got to do to survive and, and to grow. But they're obviously getting them out there again. Uh, I, I sort of uh, drew breath when I saw A Million Litres. You know, Ben Crow's Bridge Road, been operating for a long time and has national distribution um, with some very well-known brands. He's just yeah, well, Ben's going to be what 12, 12 or thirteen years now, and um, uh, Moon Dog would be four. I'm going to yeah. guess. So, so and, and Ben's only just cracked the. the mm, and then, but Ben's only just cracked the million liters, or is on the, the verge yeah. of it. And then uh, Temple Brewing, which is again another you know very well resourced, uh, you know very Phoenix high quality uh, brewery. Um, and Temple produced around six hundred thousand liters last financial year, and will produce eight hundred thousand this year. So, yeah, um, it's probably about time we had a bit of a chat to uh, Josh as well to find out how they've managed to to get their, their volumes up because um, they don't contract prof, uh, do they? Um, do no, they all made it, it's all in house. So yeah, so it seems like a very big number. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind finding out a little bit more about that. Um, okay, so uh, again, link in the show notes. Uh, uh, look, uh, I, I had in the show notes, I'd, I'd um, save the link if, if it was worth discussing, but we've got a pretty long show already. Uh, Brewdog backs down on the Lone Wolf trademark dispute. Um, look, got no interest really in that uh, anymore. Um, I just thought it was another example of Brewdog being Brewdog, walking like a duck but smelling like a uh, something else. Um, so Ed, did you pick up that story, Prof? Nope. No, no. I saw it. I, was, I figured you'd have you know little interest in it, so I didn't I didn't uh, devote too much time to it. Oh, I've got a lot of interest in it, but again, yeah, not not worth giving up our time. The uh, the other interesting thing that I um, uh, saw was the uh, Draft Mag, um, which is an American beer magazine. There was an article giving up the Growler. Now we've talked about Growlers in the past, Prof, and I think it's fair to say that neither of us are huge. Um, well, certainly not aficionados of the growler, and uh, you know. No, I don't think it's the way forward. Um, but yeah, with apparently in the states they're seeing a lot of 
uh, brewers that are refusing um, growlers for a whole host of reasons. Um, but ultimately, it comes to beer quality and people not using them. You know, guys filling growlers of hard to get beers and then sending them across the country is you know mewling or you know um, when it's yeah. meant to be consumed fresh. Um, not to mention, you know horribly noxious growlers being returned and putting beer in so uh, yeah i thought that was quite interesting i'd be very interested to hear what our readers um or our listeners uh, think about growlers given a lot of them i know that on a lot of the forums that you see the you know, craft beer crew or australian beer people um showing off their later growler latest growler purchase so yeah i'd be interested to hear what our listeners think about um growlers so anyway that was the news um Prof, uh, let me see. As I said, um, our, our guest is David Cryer. Um, he probably doesn't need too much introduction, so we might just get straight into our chat with David Cryer. David Cryer, uh, after 118 episodes, welcome to uh, Radio Brews News. Oh, thanks, Matt. Uh, great to be here. And... Uh... This is 119 we're doing. Um, this is 118. Yeah, no, this is 118. This is 118. So uh, rely on me to get confuse it. There you go. And I, I just threw that number in there because, as the uh, long-term sponsor of the show, uh, we wanted to let people know that you weren't the first guy that we got on, um, and it was 118 episodes of Radio Brews News, and uh, more importantly, 25 years of Cry and Malt before we uh, had a reason. Well, actually, we've had plenty of reasons, but before we could get you on without looking like we were hopelessly conflicted. My pleasure to uh, bring and help this happen, and, and all this information you're providing. So, really happy to be involved. Thank you. Well, David, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the big thing that we wanted to have a chat to you is Cryer Malt is celebrating 25 years, and I, I guess you're no stranger to people that are new to the beer scene. You're a, a you supply malt to most of the craft brewers uh, kicking around Australia and New Zealand, and you were also a very visible presence at any industry event. But uh, maybe for, for those who don't know uh, about Cryer Malt, maybe you can go back uh, in, you know, we can go back into the way way back machine, and you can tell us a little bit about how you came to be a, uh, a, a malt trader. Yeah, well, back a long time ago, last millennium, I was a wool exporter, and I had done that for about 13 years or so, and at that stage, wool was not a great game. There was a big stockpile worldwide, which was making the market depressed. It was hard to actually make a crust. So my cousin had married a guy, Peter Ellis, who ran Murray Firth Maltings over in the UK, and he came to New Zealand, because obviously my cousin is from New Zealand, they were out visiting, and he had seen craft breweries in New Zealand beginning to pick up. He'd seen what had been occurring in the UK and the beginnings of the US scene. So he said to me, look, I know you like beer, why don't you try selling some malt for me? And of course, being a lover of beer, that was uh, an easy choice to make. And I gave it a go, imported a container, because I was used to logistics at that stage, having moving containers of wool around the world to Nepal, Pakistan, all sorts of various places. So bringing in a container to New Zealand was relatively easy. And we began to sell this product. And what I noticed was there was a real desire by the brewers in New Zealand to try this malt because they had uh, read about English beers and were not getting quite the flavours they needed from the local product. So they were very keen to try it. And it was a very easy thing to sell. Then over the period of the next few years, I slowly began to import more and slowly exited from the wool business. And so the beginnings of Cryer Malt, or as it was known in the early days, David Cryer Wools Limited, I dropped the wools and it became David Cryer Limited. 
and a few years later became Cryer Malt. So those were the beginnings of why I entered the industry. And um, it was just really so easy for me to do. I met the brewers and enjoyed meeting them, learning about how they make the product. I had um, an affinity, I suppose, or developed a passion for the industry at a very early stage, and that's really still with me today. So 25 years, and I'm really still enjoying the industry, and I, I enjoy, still enjoy meeting brewers, and I enjoy sharing a beer with them. How many brewers were there at, at that stage? Because we, we've obviously seen a, a rapid uh, scaling up of the industry, but were there many, many potential customers for you back in those days? In those days, I think from memory there were about 15 in New Zealand. Some of them were extract. Uh, they weren't very big. Um, in the early days in New Zealand, you had Emerson's and Harrington's, are the, the two bigger ones that sprang to mind, and they are still around. Obviously, Emerson's is owned by Lion, and Harrington's is still independent, and they celebrated their 25 years at the same time as, as I did, so we, we did a joint beer together, which we released just recently, and John is um, John Harrington, the the, the founder, uh, is of uh, advanced years as I am, I suppose. And so we we put out a beer called Old Spice, which we thought um, was fairly amusing, and uh, tickled our fancy. And it was a lovely spiced Christmas ale, and that celebrated 25 years of Cry Malt and Harrington's. But back to the number of breweries that were there, there were about 15, and. As far as I'm aware, in Australia there were very, very few. There might have been the G-Bung Polo Club and maybe uh, the Matilda Bay Brewery that used to be on Flemington Road was probably around. I came over to Australia from memory in about 96 to one of the earlier AIBAs and that's where I met Ross Norris from G-Bung Polo Club. And at that stage a lot of people were convinced that there would be no craft beer revolution in Australia they believed that the likes of what we had, uh, Chuck Hahn had put, set up his brewery in the late 80s. Um, there were a number of other large breweries went into Australia. Um, you had Swan Brewery, etc., and they were all bought up by the larger guys. So they felt that the craft brew revolution had occurred. And I obviously didn't agree with that and went ahead and set up Cryer Malt through uh, a bloke called Wes Smith. He, he worked with me in Australia back in about, crikey, we're talking 99 around then, and Scotty Morgan, who's now at Rocks Brewery, was involved at that stage, and we began to sell malt into Australia, and then Wes went off in his own direction and set up Maltcraft, which later was sold to Bintani, and that's obviously my competitor today is that's how they got started but I took the business which Wes had left called Crime Malt Australia and we started selling in Australia directly and that was in about 2000 and we've been going ever since so that was a, a lucky moment for us one of those forced situations which can sometimes help. And, and before you came along how many uh, malt uh, suppliers were there or where, where were the uh, existing breweries getting their malt from in those days? In New Zealand, it was um, the Canterbury Malting Company, and the Canterbury Malting Company was um, set up by basically DB and Lion, sorry, were the owners, and they supplied the market. And so pricing was set at a level, basically, which suited the malting company, that they said, you know, there's the price, take it or leave it. So for a new entrant into the market at that stage, it was, um, it was relatively easy to be price competitive, but more importantly, we had... a 
a product difference that people were looking for. And I added to the Murray Firth product we, we brought in later merged with Beard's Malt, and that became the Beard's product, which we still sell today. But we added to that range Wireman in about 1999. We bought from a company called uh, Duncan Beverage Systems down in Nelson. We bought the rights to Wireman back in 99. And that was John Duncan, who owns Founders Brewery, which he later sold to Asahi, or Independent or Boundary Road. And we began bringing that product in, and once again, we found a, a ready and waiting market wanting to try the German products to make specific styles of beer that they'd been wanting to make for a long time, but couldn't find the correct raw materials to do that. So that was a, another good move on our part. Over in Australia, of course, you had uh, Joe White and Barrett Burston, and I am obviously from the early days I started working with Barrett Burston and offering their range of, of pale malts and uh, specialty malts, which they do. So those were the existing players in those days. So I was a, a new entrant working with and also competing with slightly, I suppose, with our imported products. Prof, did you want to jump in? David, we've spoken to um, plenty of hop producers over the journey and we've discussed the the way that, I guess, the growth in craft beer has gone hand in hand with the availability of the materials. Do you, do you kind of see it as, I guess, a symbiotic relationship in that um, your business grows as the need for new and interesting beers grow, new and interesting beers grow because of the availability of, um, in your case, um, you know, the specialty malts that are uh, are needed because presumably I'm guessing you can't really sort of compete um, with the big producers uh, and the big breweries um, in terms of you know base malts, pale malts, that sort of thing. So it's really sort of I guess the it's the interesting side, and that's kind of driven each other. Yes, that's true. But um, it depends what your description is of base malt versus specialty. Um, some of the Wyman products, which are base malts, which we bring in, they are quite unique so they can't be made by the bigger bigger guys and a lot of the guys want to use these these malts and I'm thinking of Wyman Premium Pills, uh, Bohemian Pilsner and some of the, the variety specific ones that they make. There's there's a growing demand for those as people obviously want to uh, have a point of difference in their beer and it enables them to tell a story that uh, is able to because with all craft beers, they, they are more expensive than the big brewery products. No one in craft is going to try and compete head-on with big brewery. That's um, going to be a futile exercise, in my opinion. So they need a point of difference, and that's where some of the, the malts we bring in, depending whether they're specialty or base, that they give them that opportunity. So, yeah, our business has definitely grown alongside, because I'm familiar with the growth rates in New Zealand through um, the ANZ study. So I can compare our growth with them and we pretty much move with them and it's the same in Australia. Australia, it's slightly more difficult to get those numbers, but um, from what I can see, we're, we're growing at about that rate every year. Does that answer your question, Prof? It does. Yeah, I probably meant, um, you know, basic malts or, or I guess, you know, the, the bread and butter malts in the same way that, you know, you'd be mad to try and grow uh, prior to Ringwood hops and compete on price, you know. Yes. That the big guys are getting the, I guess the, the more basic malts. Um, yep. you, you kind of leave that to well, the we, bigger ones. 
Myself and my and my competitors, really, we are also logistics companies. We we sell malt, obviously, but it's our job to have. We've got multiple warehouses, and we have to uh, look at the catchment area of that warehouse and try and forecast what they require and have it on hand when they require it. Because all of these craft breweries are by nature cash starved. They've put a lot of money into concrete and stainless, and really they do not want to be holding vast amounts of stock because uh, it eats up cash, but also, as you'll be well aware, storing malt is uh, not the easiest thing in the world to do. There are pests, weevils, all sorts of things that can go wrong, so that's our job to manage that and have it ready for breweries on a just-in-time basis so that they can uh, be efficient and get out there and, and sell and market beer, and we worry about the other side for them. So really we are very much first and foremost a logistics company with great malt experience. David, you mentioned before that uh, you had people saying at the time that they didn't think that there was going to be a revolution as we've seen now, that the, that the craft beer rise had uh, been stomped out you know, way back when. Yes. Um, the, the, the way that I view the industry, it really was the um, creative use of hops that has... That, created the excitement that has spurred on the modern industry and then we've seen um, brewers wanting to experiment with other ingredients and uh, yeast and malts have really come to the fore uh, a little bit more lately. You didn't, so I guess the first thing I should say is, is that is that a reasonable um, assessment of the last uh, you know, 15 to 20 years of, of the craft industry? And that being the case, do you wish maybe you'd gotten into uh, hops way back when instead of uh, malt? Well, we've always regarded ourselves as the malt specialists and we, we still believe we are. So um, short answer is, is no, because I think focusing on the malt has um, enabled us to, to hone out a, a successful business. But just going back to your point about hops defining, I think when we came into the market, and in New Zealand it was, it was clearer for me, at that time New Zealand hops were making pretty much... Um, not aroma hops, and they weren't the, the right sort of hops for craft, really. There, were, there was a smattering of, of interesting varieties. I, my, my expertise is not in this area. But I, I felt that, with, especially with Richard Emerson, when I was able to offer him uh, German Pilsner malt, um, you know, English Marisotta, it really opened up the world for him. So I, I think in the early days, malt was a key driver of, of that growth and differentiation, which, which really got the market growing. And then hops really jumped into it, I'd say, maybe five, six, seven, eight years later, and they've, they've gone ahead in leaps and bounds in just what they're offering. And they've all, New Zealand hops in particular, have changed. Now they're offering a huge variety of very interesting hops, as, as you've got in Australia as well. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of development uh, across the hops and a lot of breeding of new hop varieties and it, it's interesting to speak to hop growers now. They're actually looking at very flavour-positive changes in their hops, whereas brewers, the, the, the big brewers, particularly 15, 20 years ago, were looking at hops that were more efficient at getting bitterness into the beer and turned much more of a commodity. Um, have we seen a similar development in malting? Uh, are we seeing growers trialling new malt varieties and looking at flavour positive aspects or uh, you know, in interesting attributes to the, to, to the uh, barleys that they're growing for malting rather than just trying to get higher yielding varieties with a certain uh, you know, sugar content and uh, you know, enzymatic reaction um, through the malting process? 
Yeah, well, we've um, been running the um, Growers and Brewers program down in, in Melbourne for the last couple of years, which you've been at, Matt, and this has been a point of discussion. I, I, I think hops really have shown the way, um, but barley breeding programs have been intrinsic in the, the large malting companies for many years. Uh, basically, Malt Europe and New Zealand have a program down in, in Christchurch. They do a lot of development of new varieties, and in Australia... There's the barley breeding, I think it's in South Australia, that they, they invest a lot of money in that. They're constantly developing new varieties. But, but I think the accent has been the economics have driven uh, price, yield, because the farmer needs to be looked after. So it's not all about the brewer, but the brewers, obviously, they're, they're conscious of price. I think we're seeing the beginnings of um, developing specific products that suit craft brewing. But we need to go through a period now, which is, I think, just beginning of there's a bit of a, a mismatch between the size of malting capacity to what the market needs. And that's where more development needs to happen. So smaller batch sizes can be created so we can make the specialty varieties that I think the market wants. And I think you're going to see in the next sort of two to five years quite a lot of changes because there is a strong desire by the large maltings to participate in this market. So I think you will see a lot of change coming up and I'm quite positive about that coming environment. That's always one of the issues that uh, interests me when people talk about uh, you know, big breweries controlling tap points as hindering the growth of craft beer, for example. The, the the scale that the brewing industry got to had much deeper effects than that with by you know skewing the hop growing uh, areas into commodity hops and also looking at certain because they were the biggest buyers of barley uh, and, and malt the, the malt uh, was being skewed towards their requirements as well and away from the craft so you you do think that we are starting to see the big maltsters moving towards the, the, the craft market and not just craft maltsters starting to spring up? Yeah, very definitely. Um, yeah, the malting industry for the last, since I've been involved 20 years, every time I talked to them, there would have been one year in 20 where they were happy about the malting margin they're, they're getting. So they've, they've been surviving. There's been pressure on their malting capacity to downsize. And now along comes craft beer, which cares more about flavour and other attributes than necessarily money. Of course, everyone is concerned about the price they paid, but there are opportunities there for the malting companies to make specific varieties, specific flavours that can improve their bottom line because that's what they need. And they've seen the opportunity, and it's a matter of them now aligning their capacity and how they manufacture and sell to the market and that's going on right now and they're very aware of hops really have showing the way so it's just a matter of time for the malting industry to get itself aligned and I think you're seeing the signs out there in the market right now. Was that true of the German and the English maltsters for example or were they always smaller or did they have a different um, market for their products? Well, you know, my experience of Germany is really very much obviously focused on wine and, and they have a, a massive amount of skews and they're constantly inventing new varieties. Um, they always have the advantage of a, being in a very large country with a lot of breweries to be able to develop what they're doing, but they've obviously gone into the US and 
developed, you know, varieties that suit that market in terms of, you know, what people want to make their beers with so they can make a point of difference. UK, it's maintained its more traditional way of making malt with Maris and the, the pale ale varieties, Halcyon, and there's obviously Golden Promise. And there's more of a conservative, traditional way of doing it, but um, probably Maris Otter, as we've discussed in the Growers and Brewers Forum, is amazing. It started in 1966, and it's been agronomically superseded many, many years ago by other varieties, but the industry has had to pay every year extra money per tonne for that product to encourage the farmers to grow it. So it's a great example of how variety can be good for the industry, be used as a point of difference in beer, yet the farmer is properly rewarded for doing it. So it's really re-establishing strong links with the farmers, giving them time to plan so that they can grow the correct varieties. I think you'll recall, Matt, when we were in the Growers and Brewers Forum, Andrew Wiedemann, who's who sits on some of the, the major uh, government bodies to do with grain growing, stating his first opening comment was, I could sell the entire Australian barley crop to China. Mm. So give me a reason why I should grow barley for breweries. And he, he was being slightly facetious, but his point was, was very well made. And these growers do want to support local Australian breweries. They really do. I've met them. They're, they're very passionate people. You've met them too. And it's, this stuff is starting to take root, pardon the pun. There's a bit of a virtuous circle involved in that then, though, isn't there? Because uh, paying a higher price for your raw ingredients um, and, and your, your malts means that your beer is tending to be more expensive and that increases the pressure on brewers to ensure that their product is seen as a, as a premium product for which they can get a premium price for it to justify all of that extra cost. It did, exactly, and it, it will take a commitment from the brewing industry to a path which needs to be worked out jointly to support the development of these varieties so that the farmers got, have got some surety if they go down the path of a variety that may yield less, they need to know how the equation works because when they get to the end of the year and they get less money than they did the previous, they're going to get disheartened and not participate in the program going forward. So it's, it's a really important that a, a collaborative way forward is found. And once again, growers and brewers, we've had these discussions to begin with. The, the malting industry does, needs to do its part. But I think what people need to bear in mind is we sit in between the growers and the brewers who are, there are three of us in this equation. So it's really important to get that dialogue going for us to get it happening and make sure it's the right path. It's not just about the maltings making money, and it's certainly not just about the growers making money, and it's certainly not about the brewers getting lower prices. So there's, there's a, a fair bit of dialogue needs to take place, but I do believe that is happening. Prof, before we move on from that, and that opens up a whole uh, different conversation. Before we move on, did you want to? Was there anything else you wanted to ask? Uh, yeah, but probably if you, we'll keep going with this bit, because I was just going to um, put David on the spot and um, looking back over the last twenty-five years, work out what's the you know, so the best development or trend that he's seen, and before we move. But if we want to keep talking on moving into the future. We can come back yeah, to that. Yeah, well, I, I might just, uh, just to finish, because that did open the, the question that is part of that broader discussion. And, David, we are seeing record numbers of breweries uh, springing up. And with whilst the beer market itself is growing, 
the rate at which breweries are opening is creating a lot of competition and we're seeing a lot of niches open up and a lot of price competition. Some people want to operate in the, the, the lower value um, space of the craft beer and obviously looking at that whole issue of having quality ingredients, having a, a cost and then justifying that cost to, to a punter. Are you concerned about the... Um, the competition can see craft beer race to the bottom, um, price-wise? Uh, I think the, the thing is I have real confidence in the consumer and I think those who make good beer and run a good business will succeed and the consumer will be the ultimate arbiter of what is, what is good beer. Um, if people choose to, as you say, race to the bottom, which is not a great thing, and they use cheaper ingredients, I think they'll get found out. I just, I think the consumer can tell. And the thing is with something, it's one, I go back to Maris Otter. You know, I've been told for years by the malting industry, you know, why do brewers use Maris Otter? There's nothing on a spec sheet which says why you should use their product. They think they're a perfectly good modern varietals that'll do the job but the industry still uses them and we every year we seem to sell more and more maris otter and it's to breweries that are committed to premium ingredients and it just enables them to tell a marketing story with a strong hand on heart and they're telling the truth and this is why my product tastes the way it does and so it really assists it's just, another, it's just an example of a premium product. And then we go over to Wyman. We have, as I said, premium pills, various other products which achieve that same thing. Yeah, I think that the, the price pressure is coming on at the moment, but I don't think the market moves up in a direct line. It goes, sometimes it has moments where it doesn't grow as much and we're, we're probably going into one of these phases. We've seen in recent times in America the, the growth rate slow, but it is still growing. And I think we're still in a very strong growth phase. It's just maybe at the moment it's slightly slower. I've probably seen, I think, three periods where people got washed out of the industry. So if you don't have... It's going to be about quality. If you have quality, you'll survive. And you've also obviously got to be able to run your business. So I have a lot of faith in the market. But for me personally, I'm just so excited to live in a market where... Crikey, how many? We've got 160 breweries in New Zealand. I can go out any night of the week and pretty much find a new beer somewhere, it seems. There are, I think, 1,500 different SKUs being produced in New Zealand. I go to Australia. There are 400-plus breweries, and every town you go into, there's something new. It's, it's certainly an exciting time to be a, a beer lover. Bring on the competition. <laughs> Certainly an exciting time, but I, I was reading overnight and uh, we touched on it briefly in our intro uh, before you joined us that uh, you know, Jim Cook um, was talking about the growth in craft beer and the, the, the recent statistics and saying that uh, he's heard anecdotally that you know the tyranny of choice is starting to affect craft beer as well. People are yes. becoming a little bit overwhelmed by the choice and they're, they're starting to move back to the safe brands or the brands that they know and they do tend to be the, 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 the bigger um, breweries. Is that a risk with uh, so many new brands and SKUs hitting the shelves? Yeah, so for um, Jim Cook, he's Boston Beer Company, correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, well the, um, the recent slowing in growth in America is very much at the big end of town in terms of craft. 
any um, pub breweries and also um, regionals who just supply to a fairly local place. You know, America's a big place, of course. They're still growing rapidly. So, yeah, I'm sure it suits um, his point of view that uh, people are returning to, to to bigger beers, I, I'm not so quite so sure about that. I, th- I think people are going to go. This trend to go local is going to continue. People want to buy local, and the whole thing with craft beer. One of the most exciting things for me as a malt salesman is to know the brewer. And I think craft beer consumers it's still a big thing. And when we ran Beervana in Wellington. That was the key thing for us when we set it up as the Brewers Guild in the early days was to make sure the brewer was there because that's, that's the person people want to meet. It makes it very personal. And I think that's what defines craft for me. And that big that brewer can be from James Squire through to the tiniest craft brewery around. People love meeting the brewers. So I think the trend towards local will continue. That said, we've seen in New Zealand the launch of something that kicked off in Australia a while ago, and that was the Beer the Beautiful Truth campaign. And it's, 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 it's met with quite a bit of resistance in New Zealand, much more than it did over here. Um, do you have any thoughts about the, the, the campaign and uh, whether that they are, um, by representing the entire beer market, they are harming craft, for example, or uh, whether that's a good thing for beer overall? It's not really an area I'm involved with, Matt, so no, I'm not, not familiar with um, just the reaction of craft in New Zealand. I, I've heard that there are issues, but um, there have been many issues over the years which have uh, resolved themselves, so I'm hoping that they come to some sort of accommodation. Sure. Uh, Prof, you, you wanted to uh, ask a little bit about what uh, things that uh, David would have done differently over 25 years. Is that... Yeah, that's right, Dave, just to put you on the spot. Um, but looking back over the last 25 years, best um, development slash trend that you've seen in um, beer overall and, I guess, craft specifically? Uh, the IPA. Well, the modern interpretation of the IPA. It's, it's, the, it's the juggernaut that drives craft worldwide. Um, in America, it's been now being segregated into session IPA. There's about seven different varieties they have over there and um, basically you, you can try them in New Zealand. We have different versions using the quite unusual New Zealand flavoured hops. Give it a real twist. In Australia, you know, you've got the same thing with the, the, the specific varieties there. It's a, it's a great style. Everyone enjoys trying and it's, it's so different to what people used to drink. And so it's been great to see that really carry us all along. And I think it will continue to do that. It's a, it's a great, great style. Could I perhaps suggest that, um, leading on from that, that is IPA also perhaps the worst development in um, craft beer <laughs> over the last 25 years? Uh, I just find it's just really difficult. Like you say, it's difficult now to just put out an IPA. You really have to uh, almost pigeonhole it um, so that people know what they're getting. I tried a quite a lovely um, English-style IPA, but all it said yep. was brand name IPA. Automatically, I'm expecting, you know, Pacific yep. Northwest... Um, you know, a citrus bomb kind of thing. Yep. And so it wasn't disappointing because it was actually quite a nice beer, but it brought up the, you know, I guess the discussion about uh, labelling and, and pigeonholing. That's right. And it does come back to labelling, which um, is, is the, the burning question at the moment is just you know, how much do you put on the label? But I, I think, like you, I would hope that when I bought that IPA, I would be told that it was a UK style and that I would have the ability to understand what that meant. Because like you, I enjoy 
English IPAs, and that's the segregation I'm talking about. There's IPAs, yep. there's UK, there's US, there's New Zealand. You know, we could talk Well, there's now also New England, which at first I thought, okay, is it? Hazy IPAs. Yeah, New England IPA. Is that <laughs> New England as in, you know, is it Maine and Connecticut and all that sort of thing? Or is it a new interpretation of an English IPA? Well, now you've got me interested and I want to go and try one. So, you know, that's it's the gift that keeps giving, it would seem. Um, it was interesting watching sour beers, which um, I, I particularly enjoy, but um, I hadn't appreciated. I saw it growing and I thought it would be a lot bigger, and it, I think it will grow. But um, reading the Brewers Association magazine, they asked them what they felt about sour beers, and they gave it what they had thumbs up, thumbs down, and they gave it the thumbs down because they felt that people were coming into their bars and they would buy one sour beer. So I'm not saying it's turned into a blind alley, but it's certainly not the one that's going to carry the industry along. The other great style, which uh, has been ignored for a long time, is, is the Pilsner, and I believe that's beginning to make a comeback. I've seen them popping up in Australia with uh, Feral, and you've got Stone and Wood making a very nice one, and, and many others, and you see them appearing in the US with the price of hops, being so high, there is a bit of a move, probably away from IPAs, even though that category is still growing. But the Pilsen is coming back, and and I've tried some cracking examples in the US recently. So that that's good news because I think that's a a great beer style I enjoy drinking. But I still think IPA is going to be the one that keeps going. Yeah, agreed. And uh, are IPAs as good for malt sales as they are for hop sales? They certainly are. They're very, <laughs> very good. I think um, it's a great example. If you've, if you've got good malt, you can add a lot of hop. But if, you, if you, quite frankly, if you don't have a strong malt to carry all that hop, you just end up with an imbalanced beer. So malt's doing a huge job in those IPAs, but it's often, often unheralded. And, then that, and that's not the malt industry feeling bad about itself. It's just a fact. Everyone gets excited by the hops, so I certainly do. But... Don't forget, malt is there. It's the backbone of the beer. Critical, critical part. And that's why we, you know, it's just, it's what's a fun industry to be involved. It's fun to be selling malt because we know every one of those great beers in there is a, a decent amount of malt. Excellent. And Prof, did you have anything else? Uh, no, that was me. Well, I might just uh, move into one of our regular listeners, uh, Paul Pacey, uh, uh, asked us to ask this of every guest, and so it's come to be known as Pacey's Poser. And that is, David, looking back over the 25 years of Cryomalt, if, is, is there anything that you would do differently if you were starting today? Well, I'm not sure. Would I have bought Beavana from the Brewers Guild? Probably not. <laughs> but I'm still very... That must have been a huge distraction for your malt business to be a major event um, presenter. Yeah, and, but the, the reason we did it was we, I really strongly believed that we needed to do something to make sure that breweries were well looked after at beer events, and we succeeded in doing that. I'm, I'm very proud of it, but the, uh, the cost in terms of distraction, both financially and probably maritally, <laughs> I'm not sure it was quite worth it, but I'm, I'm certainly very proud of what we did, and to, to go back every year and see it, I, I'm getting, as the distance grows between the sale date and my attendance, I enjoy it more and more. And I think it has had the halo effect we hoped it would have, in encouraging other 
their events to be responsible and to make sure they look after the brewer and and just understand how important the brewers are to the event. You know, I go back to my statement, you know, for me, going to beer events, I I enjoy meeting brewers. I I never get tired of it. And the public, I think, is the same. They really want to meet them. It's a hell of a drain on brewers because there are so many events around Australia and New Zealand now. I don't know how these guys get around and have time to actually brew the beer. It must be a huge struggle for them. But apart from that, I, I... don't have many regrets. It's just um, I was very lucky to come in at a time when um, there really wasn't much there and I was um, serendipity I suppose, offered a a great malt product and I came into the market and I really haven't looked back and I haven't had to think about it too much. I've just kept doing what I do because I really do enjoy it. So it's, it's been no hardship at all and I've got to try so many great beers with great people. It's uh, yeah, it's just a hell of a lot of fun and long may it last. Oh, wonderful. Well, David, uh, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News today. Congratulations on 25 years. And also thank you for the support you've given uh, our humble little podcast over the last couple of years as well and uh, the support you continue to give to the entire brewing industry. Oh, look, it's a pleasure. We, and we do believe in putting back into the industry because the industry supported us. So it's the least we can do is to be involved. Just with our 25th year, can I give us a slight plug? Absolutely. <laughs> We're doing a, a competition this year at the AIBAs where if you uh, enter a beer with Wyman in it, you can basically be in the competition to win a trip, all expenses paid, to Wyman. You can stay at the Maltings and get to brew a beer at Wyman. It's a hell of a lot of fun. We did one in New Zealand last year. It was the first leg of our 25th. Now we're doing Australia. And if you go to cryermalt.com.au, and just look on the news page. You'll see all the details there or just email us. But we really want everyone, all the brewers, to be involved, and it'll be a lot of fun, and they'll have a great time. And I hope whoever the winner is, they'll have a marvellous time over there. So that's what we're doing. Well, we know a lot of brewers listen uh, to this um, program, uh, generally when they're mashing in early in the morning, so uh, that's a, a good plug. And we'll uh, make sure that we include that in the lead-up to the uh, AIBAs as well um, in, in all of our show notes so uh, everyone knows where to find it and find more information. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. And uh, we look forward to seeing you, uh, if not before, at Good Beer Week. Yes, I look forward to seeing you guys at Good Beer Week. And if anyone else is there, please come and say hello. I'd love to buy you a beer and have a chat about 25 years. I won't, try, I won't bore you to death too much, but uh, come and say hello. And, and come and see us at the Cryer Trade Hub at Beer Deluxe, where we'll be broadcasting a, or recording a couple of discussion panels and also the Brewers and Growers panel that uh, you mentioned earlier as well. Fantastic. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, David. Talk to you soon. In a garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There we go, Prof. Uh, and again, I you know, can't say thank you enough to, to David Cry for all his support for not only us, but the entire industry. No, exactly. And David, again, one of those guys, I, I hope he has got a fairly large tab at Beer Deluxe during um, Good Beer Week. Um, if everyone who comes up to him to say hello, he's going to buy a beer for. 
I don't, I think he's quite willing to do that um, because he'll <laughs> he'll make the money back in malt sales anyway. <laughs> That's it. Uh, but no, look, great bloke, terrific bloke, and 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 um, uh, honoured to have him on board and, and part of Radio Brews News family. And uh, very smoothly ducking the beer, the beautiful truth question. Oh yes. <laughs> Ever the diplomat. Well, yeah, yes. look. Ever the diplomat, yeah. No, and, and, and you can certainly understand that, but uh, we, we might sidle up to the, the bar and have a chat about that during uh, Good Beer Week, see what he says. Have we cards so, and letters uh, anyway, music? Have we? No, no cards and letters. Uh, so uh, we, we don't have any. Um, people obviously waiting to see whether we're back regularly before they invest their time and money. But listeners, uh, you can call and leave a message uh, for us um, on 0730401508. That number again, 0730401508. If you are listening to us on your phone, do that right now. Leave us uh, some feedback. Let us know who you'd like to hear or if you've got any questions that you would like us to get some answers to. Um, that number is in the show notes as well. Um, you can also make suggestions for interviews, ask questions or give feedback by emailing the wonderful Freya, um, producer at bruisenews.com.au. If you like what we do and want to see us help doing it and uh, help pay for our uh, wonderful producer and also maybe buy uh, proper beer, uh, become an executive producer or a producer for as little as $5 a month or you can just make a donation to the show um, also in the show notes and uh, help other people find us by leaving feedback and a review and some uh, comments on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. There we go, Prof. That ran pretty smoothly this week because I actually took some time to write down all of that stuff. There you go. Excellent. Nicely done. Um, we might just want to uh, a little, just a small piece of editing um, on the show notes last week. I noticed we still have um, Lockie listed as the uh, ah. so, yes, we just might need to as the producer, I should say. So we don't that want to leave Freya out. Cut and paste error. Yes, there you yes. Go. I'll, uh, I'll make sure that we do that. Uh, Prof, anything ahead for you this week? Looking forward to anything? Uh, yeah, just uh, going to pop up to Byron Bay for the weekend and um, catch up with um, Two Birds and Pirate Life and Stone and Wood and Brew Cult for the um, AIBA collaboration beer brew. Ah, brew day. you're filming that you're you're hosting the filming. I'll just pop up and you know I'm just going to come and drink beer and watch them. Exactly. Well, I, I got the media release about that. And I was thinking of uh, driving down, but now that you're there, I might even see if I can arrange it. There you go. A nice couple of hours to it. Yeah, we head up tomorrow tomorrow afternoon and back Friday afternoon. Nice work. I will enjoy. Uh, yeah. Can't think of. I've sure got a couple of tastings. And, uh... So by the time we listen to this, I'll be on my way back. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to fun. hearing all about it day. next week. So, well, Prof, great to chat. It's good to be back and looking at becoming regular. Look forward to uh, catching up with you next week. We haven't teed in teed up the exact guests for next week, but we've thrown a couple of ideas out there this week. But listeners, look we'll forward to. We'll have someone. We always do. Yeah, uh, we always do. Catch up with you next week, Prof. Take care. See you, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>